Let's see. Okay, Matthew chapter 3. Um, here's what we're talking about tonight. We have been doing a series on who is the real Jesus. Started last week. Uh, you can go to belmont.ref.org, and I'll have um, pretty soon, I'll, I'll put the link where you can listen to the sermon online if you weren't here and have the outline so you can download that if you want, or you can subscribe to our podcast. I think all that stuff's already on there. Um, and, and here's kind of what we're looking at tonight. We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, which connects us to looking at the ministry of John the Baptist and how uh, it's important to understand him and his message and what he was doing if we would understand the context into which Jesus comes. Jesus doesn't come just out of the blue. He comes into a context, actually a pretty volatile context in the Middle East. Some things don't change much, do they? Um, but here's, here's, I guess, the, the heart of, of maybe how we need to start tonight is to think about this. If you really want to know somebody... You need to discover their passion. If you really want to know who somebody is, you have to discover their passion. And I would submit to you that too many Christians have misunderstood Jesus at just this point. Evangelical Christians and liberal Christians have often both misunderstood Jesus in actually a pretty similar way. They've basically reduced his passion to being only a concern for sort of this internal, this internal peace and a hope of heaven when you die. Evangelicals, you're probably more familiar with, with the way it, it goes in the evangelical subculture. The idea that, you know, when we tell people about Jesus and what he did, the implication and the only response sometimes that we ask of people to that is that they accept Jesus into their heart and pray a certain prayer. And then they try good after that to be moral, ethical people. But you see, Jesus, Jesus had a whole lot more in mind when he came than just giving us peace in our hearts and an opportunity to go to heaven when we died. And if you really want to understand who Jesus is, you have to reckon with how his passion and what he came to do and be about is so much bigger than that. No, it's not less than that. Certainly Jesus came to bring peace, to bring peace with God, to open the way for us to be in a relationship with God and to enter into heaven. All those things, yes, but not just that, not merely that. And I think as we dig into this passage tonight, you'll begin to see that. Jesus comes into a particular context, and yet too often we read we read the Gospels, excuse me, read the things that Jesus says with sort of late Western individualistic eyes and ears and think that he's talking about the opportunity to have a private little experience with Jesus. There's a lot more to it. And so we come to the scriptures in Matthew chapter 3 and start at verse 1. Read with me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. 
Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, or as many translations say, am not fit to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, or as the Gospel of Mark says, heaven was ripped open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this opportunity to study it together. And we pray that you would send your spirit to fall on us, that we would understand, not just to understand, but to respond and to live this word and what we see here and what we hear in these words about who Jesus is and therefore who we should be. We ask you to do this for the sake of your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name, whose passion was the kingdom. Amen. Now, you know, I think, you know, one of, the, um, one of the reasons that people get confused about what Jesus was concerned about um, comes up really in verse 2, where John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And you have to understand, you know, there, there is kind of a, a school of interpreting the Bible called dispensationalism that years and years ago tried to make a whole theology out of the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And how in Matthew's gospel, it says the kingdom of heaven most everywhere, and that that's different than the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to come here, and we're going to have a millennial kingdom where the Jews are going to, you know, all all this kind of stuff, the left behind books kind of stuff. Um, But the kingdom of heaven is when Christians are going to go and sort of be up in heaven on a cloud somewhere. Okay, let me just tell you, the reason the gospel of Matthew uses the word kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God is really because he doesn't want to offend Jewish readers who don't like to use the word God. And so they took to referring to the kingdom of God and calling it the kingdom of heaven in the first century. It's really not anything more than that. And so as we look at this, you want to understand what is, what is going on here? What is, what is Jesus coming to do? I want to make that point because it's not on my outline. If I don't make it now, I'll forget about it. Um, but here's, here's where, where I'll start out with and where I'll get back to now. Jesus comes into a very volatile situation in the Middle East. He comes into a real place with a particular place, 
with a particular context and a particular story. And what we need to understand right off the bat is that the Jews were looking for an earthly deliverance from their God. And they had a good reason to expect that because God had done that in the past. We saw in that passage that Cherie read for us from Luke chapter 1, the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, that she's remembering what God has done in the past. He has delivered us from our enemies. He has pulled down the strong and lifted up the weak and the humble. And we expect he'll do it again because he said he would. He made a commitment to his people. And yet, now the Jews are looking around and their home area, their country, is being occupied by the hated Roman Empire. And it seems that God's promises have not come to fruition. There must still be more. The Jews have a very eager expectation and anticipation that God is going to send a Messiah who will deliver them from the Romans by kicking Roman butt. And it will be the beginning, they hope, of setting up an earthly kingdom with Israel at the center. And the peoples from all the nations of the world will come and worship in the temple, worship the one true Lord God. Israel was never content to be one religion among many other pluralistic religions. It always has had a world-dominating or a world-kingdom-spreading understanding. Way back in in the first chapters of Genesis, where God says to Adam and Eve, take dominion over all the earth. Israel has always had this, and it's been stirred up and stoked throughout the Old Testament. D.A. Carson, noted New Testament uh, scholar, says, throughout the Old Testament, there was a rising expectation of a divine visitation that would establish justice, crush opposition, and renew the very universe. In other words... When we read these words of John the Baptist and interpret them to be merely an internal kind of peaceful, easy feeling, we completely miss the context of the expectations that Jesus was coming into. Now, I will tell you as we go through this semester that Jesus does not fit the expectations perfectly. But I also must tell you that Jesus is very much concerned about his world. As he's been saying through the word of God from the very beginning. The Jews have never had this idea that all God cares about is our souls. That influence comes more from Greek philosophy. It's not part of the Judeo-Christian understanding of the world and of what God is going to do for the world. And the, the, the tragedy, you see, is that so many evangelicals have bought into a very kind of post-Enlightenment, Western, liberal idea, and I don't mean liberal politically, I mean more liberal people that sort of have, have thought that, well, what God really wants to do is just to teach us to love everybody. And what Jesus came really to do was to give people sort of a sense of their self-worth so that we could, you know, love each other and, you know, be kind and nice and all get along. That's not what Jesus was coming to do. And I'm going to show you that as we begin to understand what John the Baptist is talking about here, both in his words and his actions, and what it means for Jesus to identify himself with this revolutionary movement that John the Baptist has set in place. The Jews were not interested 
in a purely heavenly or internal kingdom. They were not interested in just going to heaven when they died. They were interested in a world made right and made right now. That's what they wanted. And one of the great tragedies is that too many Christians have lost their hope for that and lost their hunger for that and have even lost touch with the fact that that's what the Bible longs for. We've contented ourselves with peaceful, easy feelings and the hope that we'll go to heaven when we die. And that is a tragedy, and it's no wonder that we're of so little effect in our world. But it wasn't supposed to be this way. Now, it's into this kind of charged atmosphere that John the Baptist comes, or I I say John the Baptizer is actually probably a better um, way to regard him. Um, He's gathering people in the desert, and he's denouncing the nation of Israel, its leaders, and its institutions, and announcing that the kingdom is near. Do you see that this is a pretty revolutionary kind of thing to do? Well, let, me, let me help you understand this, unpack this a little bit. John's message, first of all, you need to understand, like many prophets and like Jesus himself, is made up both of actions, symbolic actions filled with meaning, and words. And so we want to we look both at his words and his actions, because his message is coming through both of those ways. Um, a gold German commentator named Albert Bengel said this, even the food and dress of John preached. It's good. That almost sounds like sort of modern communication theory. And he wrote that in the early 1700s. Even the food and dress of John preached. He dresses like the prophet Elijah of old. You can look up 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 and see that. He very deliberately is in the mold of another prophet. And he maintains this austere lifestyle, right? Dressing in camel's hair, eating locusts, which are like giant grasshoppers, and honey. It's pretty, it's, you know, it's kind of the, the, his persona communicates that things are at a crisis and radical change is needed. And that is indeed what he's preaching, And he's gathering a people in the desert. Now, that may not mean much to you, but in the first century, it meant a lot. Because every revolutionary movement among the Jews that sought to overthrow the Romans began in the desert. If you wanted to start a revolution, you went out to the desert and you gathered a people. Why? Because you were trying to tie into the the history and the expectations of Israel. Do you remember? It was the Exodus where God had demonstrated preeminently, up until this time, his power to care and redeem his people. He took them out of Egypt and took them where? Into the desert. So as God's people are longing for a new exodus, a new Messiah, a new Moses to come and deliver them from their oppressors, who are they now enslaved to, the Romans, when a guy comes and says, come out to the desert and be constituted a new people, he is saying by his actions, the new exodus is coming. He's not saying, come out here, pray a prayer, and accept God into your heart. It's not what he's after. He's actually something much bigger than that. He's calling people out to the desert, inviting them to a new exodus. And by these actions, he's actually claiming that the people he is constituting are the true Israel. And here in this, in this verse, back in verse 70, when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these leaders, he says to them explicitly, you're a brood of vipers. First, he's denouncing you know, the nation, saying, repent, turn. You're going the wrong way. 
Prepare the way for the Lord by turning and repenting. Come, be baptized for your sins to be washed away so that you can be prepared for the coming of God and His kingdom and His deliverance. And, and the, the leaders, the nation is corrupt. And the leaders can't be a part of this unless by their lives they demonstrate that they've had a, a real change. So he's denouncing the leaders. He's denouncing the nation. And he's saying the new true Israel will be defined by how you respond to this kingdom that's coming. Look down here at uh, verse 11 and verse 12. He talks about the one who's coming and his winnowing fork, verse 12, is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor. You see, here's this imagery, which is pretty common imagery in the prophetic books, of a threshing where the wheat and the chaff will be separated. And here, the coming one, the coming Messiah, is pictured as the one who will do the separating. That this Messiah is coming not just to give everybody peaceful, easy feelings, but to bring judgment upon those who deserve it. That will bring unquenchable fire. It's a strong message. It reminds you maybe of Jeremiah that we looked at uh, not too long ago here in RUF. It's a strong message Um, Not only that, look, look, um, the next point here, he's baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. Now, see, you've had too much Christian instruction to really understand what John is doing here. John is not baptizing people like we baptize people in Christian churches. Now, notice this, John, who is a member of a priestly family, okay, the priests are the ones who serve in the temple and are, you know, connected to all the institution that God has set up to teach people about how he will be the one to take care of their sins, right? The temple, all that stuff. But now, John is saying, basically, my baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, yet he's offering forgiveness of sins outside of the official temple structure, That's a pretty serious thing to be doing. I don't know if you remember this or not, but do you remember what it was that Jesus was charged with that actually took him to the cross? He spoke against the temple. He said, destroy this place and in three days I will raise it up again. That's the charge that did him in. He spoke against the temple. John, by his actions, is speaking against the temple. He is saying there's a coming deliverance that will be outside of the official temple structure and hinting that there's a day coming when the temple will no longer be needed. This from somebody who's from a priestly family. This guy's out in the desert teaching this revolutionary idea, constituting a new Israel apart from the official temple structure. Are you beginning to get the picture? This guy is a revolutionary. And he's baptizing Jews. Now again, we don't realize how crazy that is. But there is nobody who baptized Jews before John the Baptist. The Jews actually baptized people all the time. They baptized people who came out of pagan religions who wanted to come into Judaism. They needed to be baptized, washed, so that they could become uh, proselytes or followers of Judaism. And the Jews washed themselves in ritual cleansing ceremonies. But nobody baptized Jews before John the Baptist. And what does it mean that he's baptizing Jews? Well, the the Pharisees and Sadducees understand it. They say, you know, they're saying in their heart, and John picks up on this, 
They're, they're claiming, they think that their safety and the reason that they're in and that they're part of God's community of Israel is because of their family heritage. They have Abraham as their father, and John is challenging that. He's saying, that doesn't get you in. You need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You need to have a change of heart. As, as some people say it sometimes, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Everybody needs to be converted. What will you do with this Jesus? How will you respond to this kingdom message that's coming? See, John is saying, it's not enough to be born a Jew to be in this kingdom. You don't get in because of your family history. And, of course, he's announcing the kingdom of heaven is near. And again, no Jew in his day would have thought that that meant merely an internal kingdom of the heart. The kingdom means the reign of God. And we've seen the reign of God, at least in, in, in little, little pictures, at many times in, in our history, the Jews would say. We saw it with David. We saw it even more in, in, a, in a tangible way with Solomon, who best represents and manifests the idea that the kingdom of the Messiah will be a glorious kingdom and nations, all the nations of the earth will come to sit at the feet and drink in wisdom from the true king, the true son of David. And yet all of those kingdoms ended without bringing to fruition all that they hinted at and all that they foreshadowed. Yet the hope has not died. And the reason the hope has not died is not just because the Jews are sentimental and they're stubborn and they won't give up on a dream. It's because God has continued to fuel that dream through the prophets. And even in the exile, even the prophets that speak after the exile and after God's people have returned to the area of Palestine, the, 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 the post-exilic prophets say, this is just hinting at a truer exile that's going to come. And there's lots of stuff I could say about that, but I don't have time. Um, And then finally, John says this. He says, there's one greater than me coming. And and it's fascinating. You know, the Jews, the rabbis taught that untying someone's sandal was a job that you shouldn't even force a slave to do. You You shouldn't even force a slave to untie someone's sandal or wash their feet which is interesting when we get to some later stories about Jesus and people that wash his feet. But John says about this one coming, I would gladly do it. I'm not even worthy of doing that job that a slave shouldn't be asked to do. He has a very strong sense that one greater than me is coming. So while his statement is quite strong, he understands that his work is just a warm-up. Now, with all that as an understanding, look at this. Jesus comes, verse 13, to be baptized by John. After John says, this one who's coming is so much greater than me that it wouldn't be too much for me to do something that a slave shouldn't even be asked to do. And yet Jesus comes to him to be baptized. Now, how does that, how does that, how does that sit with you? Jesus comes and asks to publicly identify himself with John's movement. Does that shake up your idea of who Jesus is and what he came to do? How can you, how can you any longer believe that Jesus came merely to give you peaceful, easy feelings 
and to help you find a nice girl to marry and settle down in a nice job. And, you know, if you're really radical, give 10% of your money to the church for the rest of your life. Maybe go on a short-term mission trip every once in a while. You see how that just seems so trivial? John is saying a revolution is coming. And Jesus says, I'm in. kind of silly to think that Jesus came merely to say things like, come on guys, just try to love each other and give peace a chance. Jesus didn't say that kind of stuff. Or don't worry about this screwed up world. Just believe in me so you can go to heaven when you die. Jesus never said that kind of stuff. But if you know what, if you talk to a lot of evangelical Christians brought up in good Bible believing churches and you ask them what Jesus came to do, that's basically the answers you'll get. And we wonder why the church makes so little difference in the world. And why faith in Christ makes so little difference in the lives of so many people who say they believe in him. We've domesticated Jesus and his kingdom vision. And it's one of the huge barriers to knowing who he really is. He's identifying with a revolutionary movement. And the question, I guess, for all of us is, how about us? Have we identified with a revolutionary movement? Ever since a guy named Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christians have been seduced into this idea that Christianity serves and exists to make us good, respectable people. Christianity does not exist to make you a good, nice person. It exists... Jesus came to give you a vision of the kingdom coming. And he taught us a prayer to nurture that hope that we should pray whenever we pray. Right? May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound like, Jesus, just give me peaceful, easy feelings and let me go to heaven when I die? No one in the first century would have made the mistake of thinking that Christianity was about making you a good, respectable person. It would have made no sense whatsoever. It makes sense to us because we don't hear what Jesus is saying and we miss what his passion is really about. Where does the revolution need to be fought in our day? What would you die for? How have we domesticated Jesus and domesticated the call, what it means to follow him? Are we really part of the same church that included missionaries in the 19th century who regularly packed all their belongings in coffins as they went to the mission field because most of them were going to die within the first year? Are we part of the same church? Do we believe in the same God as those Frenchmen? who had the opportunity to study theology with John Calvin himself in Geneva, only to be sent back into France, where almost every single one of them was martyred. Again, often days, weeks, months after getting there. Doesn't that seem like such a waste? Spend three or four years studying with John Calvin, only to die within the first week after you get back to France. And they gladly did it. And there were more to follow them. I don't know. (laughs) Have we made personal peace and safety and comfort our Lord instead of Jesus? I have. I do it all the time. 
I, I think that Jesus, Jesus is allowed to ask me to do some things, but there are some things that, well, he couldn't really mean that, could he? Well, I'm just setting you up. Now, let, now let, let me go. The second page here. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Now, at, at one level, certainly he's identifying with John's movement. But I think even more amazing is that he identifies with those who need to be baptized. Why, why does John object to baptizing Jesus? He recognizes that Jesus is greater than himself. I think it's, it's a very safe bet that John the Baptist does not understand who Jesus is fully and what he's come to do at this point. The reason I say that is, you know, Jesus and John the Baptist are related. Do you remember that? Their mothers are cousins. I think it's a pretty safe bet that he knew Jesus growing up, at least at, at some points in their life, okay? Knew he was pretty remarkable, um, knew that he could go to the temple when he was 12 years old and amaze people with his understanding of the scriptures, right? He was a remarkable kid, okay? I don't believe all the stories about him turning little clay animals and making them alive and some of the other silly stories in the infancy narratives. And if you ever read any of these, you don't need to bother. Um, but Jesus, Jesus, John understands that Jesus is a pretty remarkable guy. And, and I think at this point recognizes he's the one to come. But he doesn't really fully understand what the one to come after him is going to do. In fact, later, John the Baptist is going to be put in prison for speaking out against King Herod, denouncing his lifestyle. And Herod throws John the Baptist into prison. And at this point, John the Baptist begins to really have a crisis of faith and wonder, how can this be? I thought the one who was going to come after me, who was going to set things right, bring justice to this world, I thought he was here. So why am I here? If Jesus is here, why am I in jail? Why am I in prison? Why am I about to have my head cut off for speaking the truth? Do you remember what Jesus does? Some of John's disciples come to Jesus. They say, John's in prison and he wants to know, are you really the one? And you remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, well, I am, but John needs to understand that what I'm really about is giving him peaceful, easy feelings and confidence that when he dies, he'll go to heaven. Is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus says, go back and report to him. The blind can see. The sick are being healed. Jesus doesn't back down and say John's expectations that I was going to set things right, that I was going to undo the effects of the fall and sin, Jesus does not say, I didn't come to do any of that. In fact, he says, go tell John that that stuff is starting to happen. What John needs to understand is the kingdom is already and not yet. It's here, but there's a, there's a, there's a tension There's a future full consummation that's not here yet. But Jesus does not, does not tell John to give up his hope for justice and for sin and the effects of the fall to be undone and say, forget that, John. I never was concerned about that. It's not what I'm really about. No. He says, it is what I'm about. It's what I'm doing right now. It's how you know I'm the Messiah. But that doesn't mean that your life will be a smooth and easy one. And of course, the very next passage after this, immediately after John, or sorry, after um, Jesus is baptized, the Spirit drives him into the desert to be tempted. That's what we're going to take up next week. 
But, you know, Jesus is not, does not say to John the Baptist the typical evangelical answer that goes like this. John, it's only when we're raptured away from this awful world that we'll be free from suffering. And he doesn't say, um, John, I didn't come to change the world, but to rescue people from it into a blissful life up in the clouds. He doesn't say any of that stuff. No, instead, Jesus points John to these tangible messianic signs of people being healed and the blind being given sight to say, John, you're right to expect a Messiah to change this world because God cares about this world. But the work isn't finished yet. Now, but what, what, what else is so amazing is when John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to baptize you, John or Jesus insists. Why does he insist? Because he's going to identify with the people who need to be baptized. His answer, Jesus' answer is really startling. Jesus says he must be baptized now to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus does not get baptized because his sins need to be forgiven. And John knows that. Unless there be any doubt of that, God confirms it a couple verses later when the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Not, this is my son, and I'm so glad he got baptized, and now he's perfect again. No. Right? That, that's pretty ludicrous. Jesus is baptized because he is identifying with his people. And that's why Jesus says now. In other words, he's saying, John the Baptist, you're right in theory that that I don't need to be baptized. But I need to be baptized now. Because now I've begun to do my work, which begins with identifying with my people. And I am going to live everything that they should have lived. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be identified with them. You see, we think of baptism generally as a personal kind of experience that we have. But baptism really is about a corporate, bringing you into a corporate body more than it's about an individual private religious experience. When Jesus is being baptized, he's saying, I am one with these people that need to be baptized. Even though I don't need to be baptized, I need to be baptized now because I'm going to identify myself with them. And in the very next thing that's going to happen in Jesus' life, he's going to be sent out into the desert, and the temptations that are going to come to him are the exact same ones that came to God's people, Israel, in the desert when they were wandering around. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. They murmured against him. They fought against him. They cursed his name. Jesus is going to face those same temptations, and he is going to trust God, even in the dark, even in the confusion, even in the midst of the trials and the temptations, because Jesus comes to do more than just die in our place. He comes to live in the place of his people as well, and it begins here. He's identifying himself with his people and saying, I am going to obey where they did not. The servant will come to live the life that God requires. We probably rarely think about Jesus being baptized for us. I don't know. If you think about sort of the top ten stories of Jesus, this isn't usually one that makes the list. Yet, in this story, in this act of being baptized, when he didn't need to be, we see echoes of the Incarnation. He comes down and identifies with us. We see a foreshadowing of the work that he's going to do. He's taking the sin of the people as his own. He's not distancing himself from it. And a hint even that he has come not just to die, but to live a righteous life. The life that God's people should have lived. And that's going to be confirmed in chapter 4 of Matthew, which we'll look at next week. But then what about the dove and the voice? A couple points to make on this, and then we come to a close.
Certainly there's a clear Trinitarian picture here. You, people say, where, where in the Bible do you find this idea of the Trinity? This is one of the places. You have Jesus the Son. You have the Father speaking from heaven as the Spirit comes down on a dove. Distinguishable. The three persons who are all regarded as God and all regarded as persons within the pages of the Bible. But beyond that, Mark's phrase is so wonderful. Heaven is ripped open. Stronger, stronger language than Matthew uses. In other words, something huge is happening. If you survey that language in the Old Testament and the prophets, something cataclysmic is going on. And what looked like really kind of a minor deal, because notice this, the only people, when you survey all four Gospels, and it is interesting that John's baptism of Jesus is mentioned in all four Gospels, even the virgin birth is only mentioned in two. And I know we spend a lot more time thinking about the birth of Jesus than we do the baptism of Jesus, even though this is in all four Gospels. Isn't that interesting? So is the temptation in the desert. Anyway, the, um, you know, here you see, you see um, that something cataclysmic is happening here. This is, not, this is not a minor little deal, this baptism. But the only people, if you survey all four Gospels, you'll find that the only people that hear the voice and see the dove are Jesus himself and John the Baptist. Have you ever wondered how come everybody didn't just realize right then and there that Jesus was the Son of God? I mean, the voice spoke from heaven. But the Gospels tell us that the only people that heard the voice were Jesus and John the Baptist. Okay? So this was not public. That aspect of this was not public. What happens here is a confirmation for Jesus himself that he is the Son of God, the King, the prophet of all prophets. Anointing is something you do to kings, do to prophets. You don't do it for priests in the Old Testament. So there's this anointing. The Spirit comes down and confirms, the voice confirms, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It was an act of encouragement for Jesus and an empowering for Jesus. It is interesting. One of the greatest English-speaking theologians of all time, John Owen, um, has a whole book on the Holy Spirit. Very fascinating, great book, classic book. And he makes much of this fact that if you want to understand how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers, you need to start with how does the Spirit work in the life of Jesus? Because Jesus is the one who is first anointed with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. And it is kind of interesting. There's a lot of things that believers think the Spirit is, is focused on and cares about that really are not at all what you see the Spirit doing in the life of Jesus. Anyway, I throw that out. You can think about that more if you want. Um, so he, here's what's going on as well. Think about this. Who told Matthew about this? Same question is going to come up with the temptations in the desert. Who told them about this story? Jesus or maybe John the Baptist told people about this story. I think that's interesting to think about. What a rich encouragement it would have been to him. And he's going to hear these same words at the very end of his life as well, later. But here's what's important as we close this down in application. It is a very important question. What do you think about Jesus? Who do you think he is? But maybe an even more important question is, what does Jesus think of you? It's one thing to say, what do you think of Jesus? But equally, if not more important, is the question, what does Jesus think of you? And in this passage, I think you have one of the richest answers to that question. Now, it's implicit here, but it's taught explicitly 
elsewhere in the scriptures, but I want, to, I want to tell you what it is. Listen, Jesus identifies with his people by being baptized. He says this is to fulfill all righteousness. But as the, as the scriptures unfold, what's really going on here later, what does it mean for Jesus to identify with us is that we are identified with him as well. In other words, when God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, whom I love, he says that to all of those who are identified with him. In other words, if you are a Christian here tonight, and I ask you the question, what does Jesus think about you? What does God think about you? I don't want to hear the answer. Well, I'm not really sure. Or, most of the time I think he's pretty disappointed with me. Or, well, gosh, he sees everything, so I know he must think I'm a piece of crap. No. If Jesus identifies himself with you, then what that means is what God says about Jesus, he says about his people. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased, whom I love. And that's so huge because there's a world of difference, really, between knowing that you're forgiven and knowing that you please God. There's a lot of Christians who are so worn out, even though they know that Jesus came and died to forgive people from their sins. If they don't know that they get credit for the righteous life that Jesus lived, they just are kind of you know, running in place and not getting anywhere and getting more and more frustrated and, and, the, and the suspicion is growing and growing in their minds that God must really be pretty disappointed in me. And the crazy thing is, the longer people have been Christians, generally, the more they feel they disappoint God because what we generally tend to hear is all the things we're supposed to be doing, but we don't hear this very much, that Jesus identifies himself with his people, and therefore what God says about him, the judgment that God declares about him, he makes over all of those people who are in him. I wonder how many Christians really believe that. Again, it's one thing to believe you're forgiven. It's quite another to believe that you get credit for what Jesus did. You know, right, that Jesus said you need to love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Now, does that bother you? (laughs) Well, it will if you don't understand that Jesus loved God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. He said, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. And God said, I'm well pleased with that. And therefore, I'm well pleased with all those who are in Christ, who are represented by him, who are identified with him. But what does it feel like to be a son or a daughter with whom God is well pleased? And this answer might surprise you. Because chapter 4 of Matthew says, it feels like being driven into the desert to be tempted. And so right from the very beginning, you know, here you get this glorious voice speaking from heaven, this glorious confirmation. And immediately after that, the same spirit that anoints Jesus drives him into the desert to be tempted. And Matthew is very definitely saying, this is the pattern of the Christian life. First glory, then trials. And yet, if you go into the desert unsure of whether you are well-pleasing to God, boy, I'm not sure you get out again. It changes everything to go into that desert hearing that voice. 
This is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Not because they handle trials so well, but because Jesus handled trials so well and died in the place of those who failed him. That's our hope. That's why this passage is so important. Because Jesus is saying here, look, I came to bring a revolutionary kingdom. I came to deal with all of the effects of sin and suffering, not just your feelings of anxiety and your feelings of loneliness. I came to deal with so much richer, deeper things. Not that those are unimportant, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, and I dealt with your sin in a way that you can't even begin to imagine. Not only did I die so that it would all be forgiven, but I lived in your place so that when God looks at you, he says, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Now, when you understand that, it changes the way you live. If you know God is well pleased with you, it gives you freedom to say, well, maybe I could do something more than live for my peace and comfort. If Jesus, if Jesus didn't put his comfort above mine, maybe that can change the way I live. Anyway, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Jesus, that you identify yourself with your people, that you come, that you insist on being baptized so that we would know that you desire to identify yourself with us and live the life we should have lived and take on the sin that you didn't deserve. We thank you for that. We pray that the truth of that would set us free. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.